It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is the Fox News Rundown Extra. I'm Dana Perino. Dan Senor is a former Bush White House foreign policy advisor, the host of the podcast, Call Me Back, and author of the book, The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. We first spoke on the Fox News Rundown back in November, just weeks after Hamas's brutal terror attacks against Israel on October 7th. Back then, we talked about the country's unique history and its resilience. I sat down again with him this past week as I wanted to get his take on the ongoing war, his recent trip to Israel, and if the country remained as determined as ever to defeat Hamas as it did last fall. We also discussed the threat from Iran and the growing pressure on Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to free the remaining hostages and end the war. We made some edits for time and thought you might want to hear the whole thing. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our daily Fox News Rundown podcast. You can also find my podcast, Perino on Politics, every Monday by going to foxnewspodcast.com. Now, here's Dan Senor on the Fox News Rundown Extra. Uh, Dan Senor, thanks for being here. Good to be with you, You were in Israel last week, so catch us up because there was news over the weekend that Israel was actually able to rescue two more hostages. Yeah, I would say, uh, look, my the trip to Israel was uh, extremely heavy, heavier than I expected it to be. Is uh, this the first time you've been yeah, back? Yeah, it's okay. the first time I've been back since October 7th. Um, I mean, you just think about a country that, as we've talked about, experienced in one day the equivalent of 29 9-11s, the equivalent of having... 50,000 people, if you could proportion it to the U.S. population, 50,000 people slaughtered, maimed, not to mention the proportional equivalent of thousands of people being held hostage. So everywhere you go in the country, you're interacting with the trauma and the hangover, even Mm -hmm. still four months into Mm -hmm. it. At four months right now, this will be, and it's no no end in sight, Israel's longest war. Mm. And and so there's the professional military. Then there's all the reservists. Many of the people getting killed in Gaza right now are reservists, people who have their lives. They're working at tech companies. They're working as cab drivers. They're working in you know, hotels and restaurants. They're doctors and teachers, and they're fighting in Gaza, and they're getting killed, and they have spouses and children and lives, and they got plucked into this war, and they're never coming back. Mm. Or I went to Sheba Medical Center, which is the one of the 10 most impressive and, and highest-ranked hospitals in the world, and uh, where all the wounded are going right now. There's over 4,000 severely wounded. So I spent time with all these people who, you know, who mm. had lives, had civilian lives, and now they're trying to figure out how to walk with, you know, one leg or no arms or no hearing or live with no hearing. And this is and this thousands of people who are fighting, who are just getting severely wounded. It's going to be a whole generation. And we spent time with families of the hostages. I know you've had on your show families mm-hmm. of these hostages. I, I don't care what anybody says. No matter how many times you meet with them, it's just each time it's just um, it's gut-wrenching. And then just seeing friends and family who've also been directly um, affected by all of this. So in that sense, it's it's heavy. The, the trauma 
hangs over everywhere you go. I'm still upbeat, as you know, about Israel, and I think the country's incredibly resilient, but I, I will say you're there and you spend time with people. You go down to Kfar Aza, which is the kibbutz, one of the kibbutz, kibbutz, kibbutzim that was just just terrorized, went there, went to the Nova Music Festival site, which was actually the, the most chilling part of the trip, I think, because um, you could just really visualize the killing field. Um, so it was heavy. And then we had this news that you're referring to over the last um, 24 hours where the IDF had been working on this operation for some time, I've now learned, um, to go rescue these two hostages that were not in a tunnel. They were on the second floor of a like an almost like an apartment complex. And they had been these two men, I think 61 years old and 70 mm -hmm. years old, and they had been hidden out there for, you know, over, what, 120 plus days. Um and uh, your anyways, the the operation was extraordinary. The the, the commander for the Southern Command for the IDF gave the go ahead uh, yesterday, Sunday, and um, they had been waiting for the right circumstances. They had been training for it for some time, and the irony is it's in Rafa, which is becoming a point of contention between the Biden administration and the Israeli government about whether or not Israel can and should go into Rafah, and if they go into Rafah, how they go into Rafah. The Israeli leadership, and everyone I met with in the Israeli leadership, from right to left, uh, every member of the War Council, everyone, every political faction that represents the different factions in the government, they all think they have to go into Rafah. You can't finish, the, Hamas will remain intact if they don't go into Rafah. And the administration is not saying no, but is saying they're putting a lot of constraints on Israel going into Rafah, which is right there at the Egyptian border. And the idea that you're having this debate, and then there's this news that Israel has to go in and get hostages out of Rafah, and you're sort of like, wait a minute, Israel has, there are Israeli hostages in Rafah, and Israel is being told they can't go into Rafah, and it sort of triple underlines how outrageous it is that Israel is being told how it can fight this war. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. So last weekend, Biden called Netanyahu and to have this conversation. I don't yeah. know exactly how that went. Then you have the, it's so interesting the way this administration has pushed forward because on the record, they'll say, um, you know, we're very concerned. We're very concerned. Then you used to hear that there's more support behind the scenes, but now they're leaking out that Biden is more concerned about Netanyahu than ever and undermining him with anonymous quotes in the press. So it does make me wonder, like, sir, the, Mr. President, the uh, American hostages could be in Rafa. Right. Right. I mean, right. If, well, I would we say don't know that. Right. No, they absolutely could be in Rafa. And not just undermining them with background quotes. Now, for the first time last week, we had the Israel being undermined with on-the-record quotes. So if you go back over the last few months, there have been some incredibly impressive statements from the administration that I have publicly praised. John Kirby has been extraordinary from the White House podium, basically saying Israel is having to fight a war under circumstances that no modern military has had to deal with dealing with an enemy that hides in a civilian population that has built 350 miles of tunnels 
underground that are impossible to get to. No, no counterinsurgency, no military, no one, no one has had to deal with this. John Spencer, who's the head of urban warfare at West Point, just wrote this piece where he really lays out, he goes through every major war and counterinsurgency operation in modern times. He can't find another example of the conditions that Israel has to face with, a, with an enemy hiding in a dense civilian population with tunnels underneath. I mean, it's just unbelievable, willing to use human shields. And, um, and so the administration officials, Kirby, Matt Miller at the State Department, Tony Blinken, um, the president himself over the last few months have defended Israel and, 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 and made the case that Israel is dealing with extraordinary circumstances. And then suddenly last week we had three things that I thought were shockers. One, the president, as you know, in that press conference, I think it was on Thursday, where he, where he was walking away and then he was asked a question about Israel and he came back and he said – uh, Israel's response in Gaza has been over the top, which is code for disproportionate. It's the first time the administration has used that language. Certainly it's the first time President Biden has used that language. And it's just not true. How do we know it's not true? Because yeah. they've been saying it's not true. For the last few months, they, the ones, have been saying, mm-hmm. in, in fact, on my podcast, my next episode, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play all the clips the administration has said over the last few months defending Israel against charges of, of uh, disproportionality. And now Biden himself is saying Israel's response has been disproportional. Uh, Blinken said something that I thought was outrageous. He said, uh, he said what Hamas did to Israel on October 7th was dehumanizing. But just because what Hamas did to Israel was dehumanizing doesn't mean Israel has a, quote, license to dehumanize the Palestinians. What happened to Israel's fighting an impossible situation? What happened to, if Hamas wants to end this war, they can end it tomorrow by releasing the hostages and surrendering? What happened to, these were their arguments. Now suddenly Israel's dehumanizing a population. And the third thing that Blinken said is he said that the path to a Palestinian state must be, his words, time-bound and irreversible. Meaning we're going to launch a timeline regardless of the Palestinians' behavior, regardless of whether or not they can demonstrate they're ready to build their own state. And we're going to put on a timeline. It's not going to be milestone-based, and it's going to be irre- irreversible, which means October 7th, if Blinken sticks to that, will be the Palestinian Independence Day. They will be able to look back and say, this is the day we got a Palestinian state. I would say those three statements this past week were outrageous. And this is coming from someone who has defended, I've defended Biden and, and criticisms against Biden on this issue because I generally think since mm-hmm. October 7th, the administration has been responsible. I think this week was bad. I think they're responding to domestic U.S. politics. I think they're worried about the progressive base. So I'm trying to give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt that they won't actually do as much damage as their rhetoric suggests. But make no mistake, the rhetoric is damaging. And what also, also the media covering the Palestinian... Um, statements that say, you know, don't hurt us in Rafa, that all these people are going to be injured. Israel is aware and they're worried about that. Then give back the hostages because they're there in Rafa. Right. So, so you're talking about a little over 1 million people who are in southern Gaza. There are many things you could do. Uh, you could give back the hostages and surrender the leadership uh, or, or, turn, or the Palestinian people could turn on the leadership mm-hmm. and try to enter because mm-hmm. they know where a lot of these people are. Egypt could create a humanitarian corridor for many of these Palestinians. They're not interested in doing that. So so right there at the Egyptian border, the Egyptian border is like slammed shut. Egypt does not want any Palestinians coming in to the Sinai, into Egypt. 
Uh, they're worried about Hamas coming in. So they've slammed the door. So there's so many ways Palestinians could turn on Hamas. There's so many ways the Arab world, particularly Egypt, could put pressure on Hamas. There are so many ways that Hamas's leadership could end this thing. They're not interested in it. There are still, depending on how you calculate it, four to six battalions of Hamas that are that will not be eradicated unless Israel can get into Rafah. And Israel is not going to stop until they eradicate Hamas and get back their hostages. What about UNRWA? This is the UN Relief Agency. Who, Mike Tobin, our reporter in uh, in Israel, today he showed these amazing tunnels yeah. with, with tiling, yeah. you know. Um, and the UNRWA organization was upstairs. Right. So, so should the United States and others just pull funding from that agency completely? Yeah. So it's 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 the entire mo- the most sophisticated and um, technologically sophisticated and dense data center for Hamas is underneath the UNRWA headquarters. Mm-hmm. So here, j- just to take a step back, the UN has the United Nations has a refugee organization, relief organization, that works on behalf of all refugees around the world, no matter where they're from, all right? It's the UN Commission on Refugees, High Commission on Refugees. The only exception to that commission are the Palestinians. For some reason, the UN gives a a special organization, which is the UN Relief uh, and Works uh, Agency. The UN gives a special agency just for the Palestinians, A. B, under every other category of refugees, a refugee is someone displaced by war or whatever, uh, natural disaster, whatever it may be, and has nowhere to go, with one exception, the Palestinians. The Palestinians can settle somewhere else, right? But they have relief, a refugee status for the rest of their lives. So they have a right to, quote unquote, return to Israel, I guess, uh, for the rest of their lives. So you know, Bella, Bella Hadid's dad, the, the model, the Palestinian-American model, her father is technically, who lives in L.A., I think, is a, is a refugee. He is, he is at some, some point ha- has the right, according to these, their own rules, to come back to Israel. Um, so the refugee status never ends. For every other designation, refugee status ends except the Palestinians. A. B. If you are a refugee, you are a refugee. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that every one of your descendants becomes a refugee too. So at the time of the end of the Israeli War of Independence, 1948, between then and 1950, the UN estimates there were about 700,000 Palestinian refugees that were dislocated. Mm-hmm. Number varies a little bit. It's not clear exactly how they calculated. Whatever. Let's say 700,000. Today, according to the UNRWA website, there are 5.9 million Palestinians. Like, so that means that every refugee that winds up wherever has a child, a grandchild, or they can adopt, and all those people become refugees too, who all have the... So this thing has been so politicized against Israel, and, and as we now know, totally corrupted and captured by Hamas. I think there obviously has to be humanitarian programs to deal with the Palestinians in Gaza. No one's suggesting that those are not needed. What we are suggesting is the UN agency and the UN structure is ludicrous, mm-hmm. dangerous, an organ of Hamas. It should be dismantled and be replaced. And to the, uh, any argument to the contrary is just it's it's like it's allowing another organ of Hamas 
to continue to endure. A- am I correct that 80% of the funding comes from the United States? Yeah, something like that. A majority of the funding comes from the U.S. I mean, yeah. That's yeah. unacceptable. Yeah. The funding has been suspended, and I think it should be suspended indefinitely. Can you tell me the mood in the country about the United States' response and how you think how you would characterize that res- response to the Iranian proxies who killed our soldiers and the continued concern about Iran being you know, this close to a nuclear weapon? Look, there's, there's a recognition that Israel can deal with Gaza and Hamas, which it is. Israel will probably have to deal at some point with Hezbollah in uh, Israel's north and the southern border of Lebanon. And the threat from Hezbollah is even more dangerous than the threat of Hamas. It's about 10 times the weapons capability, 10 times the number of personnel. It's some of its, some of its security forces, like the Radwan security force, which is within Hezbollah, are quite sophisticated. They've had much more in-battle training than Hamas ever did because they fought in the Syrian civil war on behalf of uh, Bashar al-Assad. Um, so Israel's got these fronts in the south and the north. They'll deal with these fronts one at a time, presumably. But at the end of the day, until they deal with Iran, the threat doesn't go away. Iran is at the core of this, and Iran's threat to Israel is through proxies. So Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the Houthis, and uh, and obviously the a nuclear weapons capability. We don't know exactly when Iran is going to have that nuclear weapons capability, but we know they want it, and we know they're close. There are varying estimates on um, when it may come into being, and I just don't think and, and and their willingness, Iran's brazen willingness to not only assist in the slaughtering of Israelis, but also to assist in the slaughtering of Americans and American military personnel. As we saw, there's just a sense that. It's in the civilized world's interest to deal with Iran at some point. I don't know when. I don't know exactly how. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't think you bring calm to the region without dealing with Iran. And as we are starting to see globally, there is this coordinated threat between Beijing, Moscow, and Tehran. And they are all working in sync. Their interests are very much aligned. And their interests are not just about pressuring Israel and weakening Israel. At the end of the day, they're interested in pressuring and weakening the United States and weakening the United States basically in every region of the world, including the Middle East. So in this sense, it's tragic what happened with those three military personnel who were killed by the Houthis, but it shouldn't be shocking. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iran has been... Well, I mean, there were 165 attacks against U.S., Facilities and troops before we responded. Right, and so what? Did, what? Did, what did we think was going to happen? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, uh, it's at some point they were going to be successful. At some at some point, Americans were going to get killed, and I hate to say it, but the the U.S. response so far is fine, but it's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, until we start dealing with. I mean, what does Iran fear? Iran fears that the United States will confront Iran rather than Iran rather than the United States just constantly taking on Mm -hmm. Iranian proxies. At some point, we have to deal with Iran. I want to turn to one domestic issue because I've been hearing from some friends who have children who are students at colleges across America. Uh, These are Jewish students, especially Northwestern University. Like, what in the world is going on there? But there are other places. And I just wonder, I know that you have children around that same 
I mean, yours are a little bit younger, yeah. but I'm sure you have friends who yeah. have oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, students who are at these colleges. Where do you think we are on anti-Semitism on college campuses? What more should we do? It can't be forgotten. Yeah. So the uh, look, October 7th was a was a wake up call for many Jews in the United States who may not have been paying attention because they I think many Jews felt that there was this distinction between criticism, even unfair criticism, criticism of Israel and attacks on Jews. Actually, I do want to point out your in uh, your podcast is Call Me Back. Yeah. Your interview with John Podhoritz of Commentary Magazine, where he walks through the essay that he wrote about all the signs yeah. that were there that American Jews might have missed or that yeah. those of us who are yeah. supportive of, of the Jewish community missed. That was very eye-opening. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, I said to him in that interview, in that podcast, uh, the title of the podcast, which was hard for me to write, was was the end of a Jewish golden age, meaning we've we Jews have thrived in America. We've thrived in the West over the last number of decades. And then beginning, as John lays out, around 2018, things really started to turn dark. And then obviously October 7th, they, they entered into a whole other level of darkness for Jews. And this Jewish flourishing in the United States, is that is that going to become unrecognizable to us given what we're dealing with now? What are we dealing with now? We're dealing with, I think many Jews, I mean, I, I, by the way, when John laid that whole thing out and I said, you got to come on the podcast to talk about it, um, I felt like an idiot, like when I read his essay, because I thought, how did I, I mean, I knew all these things he was talking about as individual threads before October 7th, but the way he stitches them all together, it should have been so obvious to so many of us and, it, and it, what was coming, that the moment there was this flashpoint, which was October 7th, all these groups that had been aligned against the Jews were ready to strike. And um, and so one of the places they've been ready to strike has been on the U.S. campuses. However, as the congressional hearing uh, demonstrated where the three presidents of the universities at Harvard, MIT, and Penn um, testified, I think there was a tendency to, to, to um, put a particular spotlight on those three universities and on those three presidents. And once those presidents are gone, we've solved a big part of the problem. I think it's the opposite. I think we've, we've, we've put a spotlight on the problem and we've put a further spotlight on the problem as each one of those are, people are fired because you realize as each one is fired, the rot is beneath them. In other words, how did they get to where they are? Mm-hmm. What, what's the institution that made it okay for them to be put in a position of that kind of influence at the university with those views? And then it's not surprising, Harvard had this anti-countering, anti-Semitism committee. And after Claudine Gay has gone from Harvard, who do they put in charge of the anti-Semitism committee? Someone who is like a, a self-described anti-Zionist, like like uh, like he's he's as hostile to Israel as any one of the big critics of Israel you can imagine today. And he's now the guy who's put in charge of the anti-Semitism committee. And this is after Claudine Gay is gone. And when you raise this to institutional players at these universities, they're, they're like surprised that you're raising this, which shows you there's like this culture, the thing is infected. These institutions, these, these cultures at these places are infected. And, and so coming back to my conversation with John Podhoritz, he, he really shows that the people who were, who were being promoted and the people who are coming up the ranks at these places were being promoted with, by people who share these views. So just 
decapitating the top of these institutions doesn't solve it. You have a, you, like I said, the, you, the rot is deep in these institutions. And as someone who has to contemplate sending kids to college, many friends of mine in the Jewish community, friends of mine in Jewish day schools, I will tell you the elite institutions that were once sought after and that everyone wanted to send their kids to and all these kids want to go to, it, that is completely changing now. What, what Jewish families are aspiring to for their kids are much different than what I knew of 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. It's not just the elite Ivy school, Ivy League schools or wherever these you know top schools may exist. Now there's serious questions. Will my child feel safe as a, as a Jew, as a self, you know, as, as, a, as a proudly identifying, um, public-facing Jew, will they feel safe on campus? Will they will they think the the subject, the content of their courses and their professors be so off the wall? Not just on Jewish issues, but now you realize on all these woke issues across the board. Will they these kids feel like they've taken crazy pills sitting in these classes? Mm-hmm. And it's really putting into question the kind of learning environments people want their children in. And I think I think we are at the beginning, very beginning, very early days of a serious rethink about what it means to get an elite college education in the United States. And I think it's Jewish families, but it's not just Jewish families that are having these questions. It's true. It's true. Uh, Just a couple more questions. In October, after October 7th, you were here. And one of the things you said is that for the first time in your life, you felt vulnerable. And I think about that all the time. And I'm wondering, especially coming off of your trip that you just took to Israel, do you still feel that way? Yeah, I think... uh, it's funny, I have this tendency to, and I think many Jews in the United States do, have this tendency to um, worry all the time about Israelis and worry about what Israel is going through, which is understandable, as we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, just the trauma they're going through is, um, God, I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, we not only just, the actual, and you see the devastation and you meet with people who are suffering. But, you know, we got, when I was there, we got briefed by mental health experts who are working on the mental health issues of hostages that are released, the mental health issues of the women who've been released who were, you know, sexually uh, assaulted both on October 7th and in in captivity, Um, the children who've been released and the and the as hostages and the what it means to have been a hostage for as a child for fifty days mm-hmm. fifty days is fifty plus days is a long time for anybody let alone the life of a child okay. mm-hmm. and um, and I heard these stories like that the that the some of the Hamas operatives who were guarding these children when this, when it was announced that some of these kids were coming were going back to Israel they said to the children uh, we know you're going back to Israel but. We know where you live. Mm-hmm. We have your addresses. We're coming for you. Mm-hmm. And like the damage that these children can't relax. They can't, they can't live a normal life uh, anytime soon. I mean, I don't even know how, they, mm-hmm. how one copes with it. So there's this tendency to just constantly worry about the Israelis. And when we were in Israel, we were together with a lot of Israeli friends television show Fauda, you know, mm-hmm. you're familiar with so close friends of ours who created that show. Um, we had dinner with them one night and, uh, and you know, the what cast, remember the cast of Fauda was, was a reservist in Gaza. He fought and was, you know, that day three or four weeks ago, four weeks ago where, um, over 20, around 20 yeah. r- soldiers were killed in one day. He was part of that. I mean, he didn't die, but he was part of, you know, he, mm-hmm. 
he had colleagues who were who were killed and he friends and, and he survived and he's gonna be okay thank god and they have another member of the production crew who is a reservist and he was he uh he was killed and um and then obviously Karoff is one of the co-creators of Fauda his step his stepdaughter's boyfriend has been killed in Gaza so you're just you're asking them how they're doing and they're saying we'll be okay it's classic Israel you know we'll be okay uh we've been through Bad times before, hard times, we'll get through this. Uh, it's awful, but we'll get through it, is what they say. Then they say, how are you? We're more worried about you than you are about us. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I live in this very comfortable existence in Israel, even with the threats, the threats have changed for us. And they're like, they're like, what's happening in the United States? We never in a million years thought we would see. We as, They would say, we Israelis. We never thought we Israelis would see what you, which is pogroms going on on college campuses. Uh, Jewish-owned businesses being attacked on the 85th anniversary of Kristallnacht, just like Jewish-owned businesses were destroyed dur- in Germany in 1938 uh, the, uh, d- during Kristallnacht. Um, you know, just the taunting and tormenting of Jews either rhetorically or physically, uh, they they are like, what is going on in your country? We're worried about you. And what I realized, and I haven't articulated, you know, since you and I last spoke, what they're identifying something very profound, which is we're both suffering, right? They're suffering at a whole other level than we're suffering. But the difference between the way they're suffering and we're suffering is they feel that they have a sense of agency, mm-hmm. that they have something they can do about it. They can go fight Hamas. They can go eradicate Hamas. They can go rescue their fellow citizens, those hostages. They can go, they, they have, they know the fight they're in. And what they see in us is we lack agency in that we sitting here in the United States and we are to some degree, Dana, like we're, we're um, at the mercy of who's in government here, right? When you see these stories about, well, is the NYPD cranking down on anti-Semitism, anti-Semitic attacks, or is the NYPD letting these people conduct their attacks, they get they get arrested, they get charged, and then they're released 24 hours later? Mm-hmm. Or someone's on the subway and they get beaten up because they're wearing a, a yarmulke, a kippah, and there's no real re- repercussions for it, and the city leadership is not outraged, by what happened and it's not going like moving heaven and earth to track down who conducted these attacks or when we have members of Congress like the squad who accuse Israel of genocide, they normalize language. By the way, when you normalize language like accusing Israel of genocide, what does that do? It makes it okay to respond in aggressive ways because of course if it's genocide and it's apartheid, then any response is worthy of, uh, is, is justified. And that so people hearing that, I can do whatever I need to do. I can torment and terrorize Jews because they're responsible for genocide. And who in the congressional leadership and who in our U.S. government is taking on those forces in American politics that are seeking to normalize language that make it justifiable in people's minds to engage in horrific violence against Jews? And we Jews are sitting here. So when I said I felt vulnerable, it's not just that I feel vulnerable. It's that I can be active and I can be engaged, but at the end of the day, we are to some degree at the mercy of the government we have, the law enforcement authorities we have, the leaders we have, and, and there's the, only and the media we have and the media we have exactly. 
and the and the educators we have mm-hmm. and the cultural leaders we have and you know there yeah. there's a I limit see. to what we can do we need these people on side and sadly too many of them are not mm-hmm. and that's what's scary that's where you start so when you say what makes you feel vulnerable it's mm-hmm. not just when you see someone tearing down the hostage poster and it's just like deeply offensive uh it's not just when you know you see a violent pogrom you know in the times square or something or on a on a college campus it's the sense that you're looking around at the leadership across the political spectrum in the united states and you're saying who's got my back who's locking arms with me because i'm feeling really alone right now Mm. wanted to give you a last word about what you and campbell have created the day after fund Mm -hmm. i believe it's called um I always find that the Fox News listeners and audience are very generous, yeah. and they like to have a purpose and, yeah. and a way to help. So tell us a little bit about that. So the um, the Day After Fund was created by the uh, Jewish Federation of New York and a, and a couple of family foundations here in the United in New York that is just focused on the long term infrastructure uh, and rebuilding that will be necessary the day after the war. That is to say. You know, you got over 100,000 Israelis that are internally displaced out of a population of 9.2 million people. So that's a lot of people internally displaced. And um, and they, we visit a lot of them. You know, that these are people who lived in these kibbutzes and these kibbutzim in the south. And now they're all living together in these, you know, in cities. And, you know, they're temporarily. They're, these are temporary places. These are not their homes. Uh, we um, The long-term medical rehabilitation that's going to be required the long-term mental health challenges, the infrastructure building in the South and possibly the North. These are massive, massive long-term projects. And there are a lot of philanthropists that are focused on it, which is great. Uh, We hope people are as motivated months from now when a lot of the long-term work gets done, not just now in the heat of the moment. And so that's what the focus is. We can can link to the uh, Federation of New York, which which we're partnering with on this, um, where a lot of this work is being done. And, uh, you know, I just, again, at the beginning of this conversation, I talked about the numbers, you know, the 29, 9-11s and the, everything is hard about this. Again, I know you've spent time with, with some of these people, these hostage families. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I was thinking about this yesterday. If you think about the most memorable, uh, biggest imprint on American modern history, of a hostage crisis. It was 1979 to 1980. It was the Iranian, it was the Iran hostage crisis when uh, our embassy employees were held hostage. It was awful. Um, as a percentage of the U.S. population, it was, you know, minuscule. Still awful, minuscule. And yet it consumed us. It consumed us. Like, you know, mm-hmm. every every American was following that night after night. The television show it's Nightline. It's my earliest uh, political memory. Well, remember Nightline, mm-hmm. Ted Koppel? It started mm-hmm. as a show that was reporting on the nightly. Mm-hmm. It was yes. intended to just focus on the hostage crisis. Mm-hmm. And then it became a permanent show. I mean, all mm-hmm. these things, that, that became a, a big moment. Um, okay, so fewer than 100 hostages then out of a population of, at the time, 250 million Americans. And yet we were consumed with it. So there are 136 now, 134 after events mm-hmm. after these two guys that were released or or freed. So 134 hostages um, who are there now for over 100 days. God knows how much longer they're going to be there. Out of a population of 9.2 million people. Right. So, so so more hostages than the Americans suffered in the Iranian hostage crisis of 79, 80, 
out of a population of 9.2 million versus a population of 250 at the time, 215 change million. It's just, Israel will do things that some people agree with, some people disagree with. I, I just caution everybody, including the most senior people in our government, but not just them. Just imagine a world. Think of what we went to, through during the Iranian hostage crisis. Imagine a world in which you're a population of 9.2 million people and you still have over 100 people four months in with no end in sight being held hostage and how everyone in the country knows someone, has a connection to someone, knows someone who knows someone. This woman, Sherry Mendez, I interviewed on my podcast, mm-hmm. who's in the reserve mm-hmm. unit that does... She was I know. unbelievable. I know. She's one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. We're not, we're not telling people who she is. She is in the yeah. IDF, and she part of her, her job is to prepare yeah. women's casualties, bodies, for burial. for burial. Yeah. And what she saw and witnessed and how graciously she spoke about it in this, with the dignity of somebody who has seen so such horrors. It was a really important person to listen to. She, Sherry Mendes is an architect by day. This mm-hmm. is the thing about these Israelis. They have day jobs and they're in reservists mm-hmm. in the army. And her, the unit, as you said, prepares female, uh, females who've been killed for burial. The weekend of October 7th, her reserve unit's called up. She's examining all these bodies and she starts to see a pattern. Body after body has clearly been sexually, you know, attacked in the most grotesque ways. Mm -hmm. And she observes this is not random. Mm -hmm. This is not an outlier. This is not a one-off. There's clearly an orchestrated- It was planned. It was a planned orchestrated campaign Mm -hmm. uh, of um, sexual assault as a a weapon of war. And, uh, And so I had her on my podcast and she said, as a side point, she was just making this point how every Israeli is touched by, you know, they know someone. Mm-hmm. She goes, oh, it's just at the doctor's, you know, last week. I'm meeting with my doctor just to check him. Oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. You know, I have a nephew who's being held hostage. and So you just, it's like everywhere you go. And so I just, that just understand Israel will do this, Israel will do that. Again, some people agree with this, some people disagree with that. But just understand what this country is dealing with. Um, it is the, the trauma is extremely pervasive. Mm-hmm. Thanks for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown, and now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to the show ad free on Amazon Music. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table to Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.